between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the privilege of interviewing Professor Jonathan Schilling from the University of Minnesota. Jonathan has been on the faculty at the University of Minnesota since 2006 and is currently a professor in the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology in the College of Biological Sciences. In addition to teaching and researching all things fungal, he is the director at the Itasca Biological Station and Laboratories in northwestern Minnesota. This field station for science is tucked into 32,000 acres of old-growth boreal forests within the second oldest state park in the United States. The station also sits next to a lake, Lake Itasca, which is known as the headwaters of the Mississippi River. He assumed his position at the research station at 2018, and adding these duties to his job was, in his own words, a reflection of of my deep connection and commitment to nature that was forged in the mountains of West Virginia as a kid, along the entirety of the Appalachian Trail as a young adult, and among family and friends in a St. Paul neighborhood who have shown how important community is to conservation. Well, Jonathan, it is an absolute honor to have you on the Mushroom Hour podcast. It's great to be here, and I appreciate what you do. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Well, that's slightly humbling. And I really love that that little anecdote you said that it kind of in your own words about your journey. You know, in some ways that, that says a lot just with that. But why don't we start there? I mean, why don't we tease apart that origin story a little bit, this relationship that you developed with nature and the biological sciences and then fungal organisms and kind of how that led you to to where you are today. Yeah. Yeah. I think it um it all kind of um started from spending time running around the woods. Um, being the youngest child of a family, I had a little extra time to run, to run wild in the hills of West Virginia. So I think I, I spent a lot of time growing up just uh, connecting with nature. And I went to college. I, I uh, began focusing on biology. And I think that the intent there was to understand uh, in a little more detail uh, what I was looking at when I was outside. I've always been interested in, in wildlife and birds. I've always been into birding and um, and so I think that gave a little texture for what it was that I was experiencing when I was outside and the Appalachian Trail through hike, uh, which was quite a long time ago now uh, for me, but was uh, really where it uh, cemented, I think, a relationship with nature. And so I've been kind of backtracking my way to get back to that kind of essence during uh, my faculty career since I've been here in Minnesota, which has been since 2006. And so part of that move to the director job at Itasca was to, I think, enable my job or enable my position with a little more purpose towards what I felt like in terms of that 
connection to nature. And uh, yeah, it was a good, a good timing to, to do that. And, and it also happens to be in the boreal forest, which growing up in the mountains and uh, the Appalachians was kind of always where I wanted to be was up high. And the, the tops of those mountains, it's boreal just like it is here. So there's this funny, funny uh, draw to the north woods that uh, it's kind of always been there. Well, and I love that, that really the, the undercurrent, the root of this is that connection with nature. And I love how you said that, that it was about recapturing what you felt on the Appalachian Trail, because when we traded notes before the show, you know, you put something in there about the Appalachian Trail, the through hike didn't necessarily help my social skills. It did not. <laughs> but <laughs> no. it, got, it got you to that, that communion with the natural world. It did. Yeah, it took me a little while to rebound, but may, maybe I was doing some deep thinking. I, I think most people, when they get done, it's like doing, a, I, it depends on your Peace Corps run or, you know, it's like going overseas for periods of time. So you come back and it takes a little while to readjust. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah. So you can see that that current kind of following your career then. And I guess when we talk about fungal organisms, when did that enter the picture for you? I mean, was it like a chance encounter yeah. out foraging? Was it just studying biology and you got to this massive field of organisms that could seemingly do everything? I mean, what was that like for you? What was that the aha moment? Yeah, I think it was kind of the, the second one there that I didn't grow up. I kind of wish I had a story like that where you know, from a young age, Jonathan, when he was three, you know, <laughs> he was caught, spent, he spent 24 hours watching the emergence of, you know, an Amanita in the forest. And I kind of wish I had a story like that, but I, I think it was connected again to these, like this uh, interest in kind of large scale dynamics in the forest. And when I was in graduate school, I learned, I think about myself that I was thinking grand thoughts, but I tended to get caught in the details and and I enjoyed that part of things and that part of science. And it just so happened that in my my quest for understanding uh, what was uh, very important when I was doing my PhD, which is acid deposition in the forest, um, that the fungi were driving that. And I uh, eventually uh, got lost in the details of the fungi. And so I don't know if it was, I, I, I don't know if it's an aha moment, but it, it was an acknowledgement, a slow paced kind of acknowledgement that there were these organisms there. For one, it helped that I could point to them and uh, see them on my hikes and right. to kind of connect to that fact that, okay, there's there's a set of organisms here that is driving some pretty large-scale processes. And there are some interesting new tools that we could use to look at them, to see them in the first place, measure them. And so it kind of rode this wave of uh, DNA-based science to, to track who these organisms are, how they work, and how they're driving these big-scale um, dynamics that I was seeing. So that's kind of, that's, I think, I think how I got there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a journey of big picture ecological discovery, but also self-discovery and kind of finding right. a path that integrated all that into, and would it be fair to say, I mean, when we characterize your research, I mean, would it be fair to say that when we focus on these forest dynamics, most specifically, you were focusing on saprotrophs or excuse Definitely. me, saprobic yeah. fungi, especially the wood rot fungi, right? That's right. Yeah. I think saprotrophs is okay too. And yeah, definitely there were um, some dynamics at that point were focused on cations like calcium and their uptake or movement in the forest soils um, and acid deposition tended to kind of flush those out of the soils and made, made it hard for a lot of trees. Actually, they need calcium and uh, when you lose a lot of calcium and then it releases a lot of aluminum into the soils, uh, you'll, you'll begin to have problems. And so these saprotrophs are in there. They're they're eating wood. Those are the ones I know the the best, and uh, they just uh, just ha so happen to connect with soils and uh, do. They're sort of like conduits for um, calcium, so they they replenish a lot of uh, root available calcium for trees in the forest. So they provide this function that we were interested in, and 
um, that asset deposition story. And when we talk about asset deposition, what's the main driver for that? I mean, are we talking like acidic rainfall or what's the main driver? Yeah, it's acidic rainfall, acid rain. It used to be the uh, sulfates and were a big deal and they, they still are, but that was from coal burning uh, and, and industry. And uh, some of that has shifted uh, since the Clean Air Act. And uh, it's actually a pretty good, pretty good reflection of how regulation can be pretty helpful <laughs> and uh, not just like community grassroots based stuff, but yeah, regulation still has, uh, has a lot of power and is useful for, for keeping our air clean. We still have a lot of nitric acid that, that gets formed in the atmosphere. A lot of uh, that is from our fossil fuel burning and, and driving cars. So it's still an issue, but You'll see these patterns in in the research that kind of come and go. I, I think the study that I actually started working on when I began my the PhD, which was in uh, Maine, was actually designed for something called gap disturbance. And foresters were very interested in gap disturbance, how succession occurs in the forest. And so we had these long-term plots because everything takes a long time. It takes a long time for a tree to grow. It takes just about as long for, you know, if you're going to watch it rot. <laughs> so it's slow. And uh, so it started as that kind of experiment and then became this acid deposition focus. And uh, there were grants written that were retooled to address the new interests with, with this kind of the same old design. And actually, when I left, I think those experiments were probably of most interest for carbon cycling and greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's kind of interesting. And, and again, that wood is up there rotting in Maine still. So <laughs> I can always go revisit it again. <laughs> the experiment continues in perpetuity. As That's it were. right. Yeah. And when we're right. talking about this aspect, because this, this fundamental dynamic, I mean, we all love to hear about the mycorrhizal fungi and symbiosis has this special place in everyone's heart and minds mm -hmm. for how fungi operate. But I mean, this dynamic of breaking down dead material, I mean, this is fundamental to the core of every ecology, many different cycles. So when we're talking about wood decomposition in particular, can you distinguish for us some of the player? I mean, I think a lot of us know white rot and brown rot, but I mean, in your mind, what are the different kind of categories of these wood decomposer fungi to kind of set some fundamentals? Yeah, they are part of the wood wide web. I know that, uh, you know, that terminology is out there and we mostly think of those, those mutualists with tree roots, but these are, these are in the mix. And a lot of those mycorrhizal fungi actually um, evolved from these saprotrophic fungi. So they, right. they still have the same machinery they need to break things down, but they're, you know, they're nuancing it with a, with a living organism instead of just eating a dead one. <laughs> but uh, they are in, you know, in the forest soils and uh, are moving things around all the time, including calcium. You know, they're pulling it from the soils and bringing it into the wood and providing a function there that is important to the plants eventually. But those two you mentioned are, uh, what I learned to be the two principal ways to break apart a piece of wood. And so when trees build themselves, they create something called secondary xylem, shrubs too. And that, that is the definition of wood is secondary xylem. And that is uh, generally what I would call dead tissue. There's some living components to it, like parenchyma and a little bit of starch. Um, that's uh, like a sugar, you know, that's good, good stuff. We could eat that, but not much. And it, mostly it is embedded carbohydrates in cellulose and hemicellulose and those are sugars so it's uh, it could be candy but it's all linked uh, with bonds that are kind of tough to break apart or hydrolyze and those are are there as a food source but they're tough to hydrolyze with en enzymes and there's another component in the lignin that's in there that uh, can be maybe 20 25 or even 30 percent by weight of that 
wood. And that is a, a curious polymer, but it is generally tough to make a living metabolizing lignin. And typically the way we think of it is as a barrier. It helps the tree, of course, and its strength properties. And wood is a whole nother story. It's, uh, it's a fantastic story of biology and evolution to, to have a, something that strong that actually enables conductivity of water. And, but, um, but the fungi want it and they want to eat it and they've got to get that lignin out of the way. So these sepatrophs originally evolved, um, that white rot mechanism, which was to uh, create a very unique set of enzymes in the, what are known as the peroxidases and deploy those to degrade lignin, which is um, without getting too deep, you know, it's just kind of this amorphous ring structure stuff, you know, and there's lots of different bonds in there. So their approach, this is all anthropomorphic, which I love. I love thinking like the fungus, but it's kind of like they came up with something that's um, a little loose in terms of what it reacts with. And it kind of will uh, just uh, break these different bonds a little on the wild side. There's no, there's not the, quite the specificity you think of as uh, something that's enzymatic. And that can break these bonds of the lignin and then get it out of the way. And that creates the opportunity to then access those sugars. And then they have the enzymes that they need to break those down. And that's white rot. It tends to look white. Uh, it tends to be stringy looking. And uh, it, again, is pretty low lignin. So you can track it over uh, time and watch it remove almost as much lignin and sometimes even more lignin than the carbohydrates. To, to get at those sugars. So that's how it makes a living. The, uh, the other group is the, these brown rod fungi. That's uh, what I study more in the laboratory. And they have a trick. I'm kind of biased towards them, but I, it, they have a curious, cool mechanism where they figured out a way more recently in evolutionary history and in many different clades. It's a story of convergent evolution where they uh, multiple clades of these fungi kind of came to the same conclusion again. And somebody that, that studies evolution would kill me for saying that probably, but you know, it's <laughs> like a, it's kind of a, a miracle almost, you know, like there are six or seven different clades of these fungi that sort of arrived at the same conclusion that there's a, there's a way to get around the lignin without having to deploy those enzymes. And so they got rid of them. They're not in their genomes for the most part. They're gone, got rid of those genes, don't need them anymore. And instead evolved some curious pathways for using something called reactive oxygen species to produce, deploy at a distance from themselves. And, uh, and those are very highly reactive, short-lived, and they just slice and dice and will uh, oxidize that substrate just willy-nilly. So mm -hmm. I equate it kind of like the difference between the white rotters that are using like a pickaxe to mine gold to uh, these brown rotters, which are almost like they're going in first with a stick of dynamite, you know? <laughs> and so you don't want it to get, you don't want to get too close to the dynamite. And then you got to go in there and pick up the pieces. And, and from that mechanism, you get something brown at the end, but that's also crumbly like florist foam. And it's as if it's been demolished, you know, so you get a lot of strength loss right, right early in the decay process. So that's that model holds. There is another group. So that's the white and the brown rot. There's another group called the soft rot fungi that I, I don't know if you've had somebody on the podcast that studies soft rotters. They're pretty cool. And, you know, you, you tend to uh, run across these people that are working in some kind of extreme environments. So that can be fun. We're super dry, super cold and also super wet. So a lot of the tropics where we haven't done enough research, I think there's a soft rot story down there. And that's a mechanism that's a little bit of a blend of those two that I described. 
Interesting. But they're different. They're totally different. So yeah, there's another group out there that's the soft riders that may be coming on strong. <laughs> and when you talked about the convergent evolution, I mean, was that, yeah. and maybe I'm reading this into it, but was that an evolution of various white rot fungi converting to brown rot? Or was that because it would seem that when you said they lost the enzymes, it would seem like someone who had the capacity to break down lignin decided right. let's use dynamite instead. That's it. Yeah. And again, it's like anthropomorphic, I think. And um, right. Which I love as well. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, <laughs> somebody studying evolution. I, I, my brain is interested, you know, I get interested in those evolutionary questions, but sometimes I think I, I speak out of, out of uh, my expertise. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, it, it's, it's, that's an easy way to think of it. I think is that, you know, they, these are organisms that were the same and that there was, there was an event or there was a period there where some portion of that group peeled away and decided, or, you know, that they didn't decide, but st started to have success without having to, to break down the lignin first. And it's cool because the, the enzymes that are, you would think that they would have dumped, gotten rid of the lignin degrading enzymes in their DNA right. and instead picked up a lot of those carbohydrate degrading enzymes, but they got rid of those too. So they, they have about 30, 35% of what's left of those original genes that are supposed to be for breaking down the carbohydrates. And it's because of the dynamite, you know, it's because they're using the ROS. It does basically does everything, it slices it all up. And so they don't really need all that many of those other enzymes. We call them carbohydrate active enzymes or casimes. And they, instead, they just produce a lot of them. So they put, just put a lot of energy in a few of those remaining genes to scarf it up. Yeah. And when we talk about liberating basically nutrients from wood for use in the greater forest ecology does either one of those tend to and just thinking of the acid example of displacing the calcium and then needing to kind of figure out where we can get more calcium in the environment right. does one of those types seem to be more uh, i don't know if you want to say effective but more prolific in terms of the amount of nutrients or compounds it frees up for the rest of the plant life to use yeah no that's actually it's a great question um, that is a great question if it, I think it depends on where you're looking at them in the lab, if I'm working in what I call a mesocosm. So we have a system here called an ASTM soil block microcosm, and it is a mason jar with dirt in it. That's, <laughs> very, <laughs> that's, that's very what it technical. is. Very technical. Yeah, we've made it sound very technical. But uh, if they're in that environment and it's just one fungus and we are testing their rate of decay, those brown rot fungi with the dynamite mechanism, they, they'll go faster. They tend to go uh, maybe 25% faster than those white rot fungi. But we always have to check ourselves and ask, is, is the world brown rot? You know, this, if that's faster, is it all better? And it's not, you know, the brown rotters are out there, but the world is primarily white rot. Um, so this brown rot mechanism works in certain, certain niche environments. Uh, the boreal is one of them where there are lots of conifers. They, it tends to be something that you find a lot in these coniferous forests and in lumber. There's a lot of history of brown rot in lumber, but um, for whatever reason, the, the world is, uh, there's a lot of white rot out there and, and probably soft rot when you look at these tropical environments. And um, so we have this kind of big question of what's the world going to look like, you know, as the climate changes, most of these brown rotters are up north. So it could be that you find fewer and fewer brown rot fungi in you know the coming years but in terms of the the mechanism that's a that question you ask is a really interesting one where if you're using that type of mechanism which is so loose it's like a loose cannon you know that's going in and just opening it up you 
are opening those things that are released up to be used by others. And that might be what limits that mechanism, that it's uh, it can be effective when you're all alone. But if there are others that are out there, they may take your stuff. You know, they may cheat. And That's then right. it, it may release other things for other organisms that, you know, it, it, it changes the, the variables. So it's a cool way to think about it. That's intuitive. Well, and then going with that, you know, is there potentially competition between the species. I mean, when we talk about a piece of wood falling in the forest, is there a sequential, I don't know if sequentiality is a word, but yeah. is there a, a sequential nature to when these arrive or do they arrive at the same time and, and duke it out? Are there wars in wood or do they kind of pick apart different pieces they want or how does that work? Totally. No, there's totally a war in wood. I, I think I've even seen that title used um, with, the, I have worked with somebody named uh, Mark Bradford, who's at Yale. And he, there was a student at the time in his lab too, Thomas Crowther, who I, between the two of them, there was some article run that was like the war in wood. I think it was this, <laughs> that same <laughs> title. And uh, yeah, there's totally, there's totally combat involved. These are, it's kind of a nerdy group of organisms because they are, they're picking apart something that's all, it's like eating fiber, you know, that this is not exactly the Lamborghini group, of, you know, like the slick talkers of the microbial fungal world, you know, they're kind of yeah. nerdy. They're like, we, we've come with a special set of tools, you know, that <laughs> we're going to pick this apart. <laughs> I've never heard of nerdy fungus. I love that. I love that categorization. Okay. <laughs> that usually means, you know, in terms of combat, you know, they're not like the, they're not the creme de la creme in terms of duking it out. And it actually makes for hard. It, it makes it a little hard in the lab sometimes, because if you get contaminants, you know, in the, they're, our fungi are never going to win out in those situations but but there's definitely um a sequence and we would call that succession so that's a uh, kind of an ecological principle where um, you get a succession of organisms and it's it's curious because you'll have an environment that gets disturbed and there's some organisms that are good at taking advantage of that they're called ruderal or i would call them ruderal they deal with disturbance and they get in there fast kind of uh, take advantage of what's there and then it sets the stage for this this process of you know who gets there who can get in there fast to take advantage of the easy stuff so in wood it might be the starch i mentioned there's a little bit of starch in there it's not much you know to make a living on but it's enough for some organisms so those are quick they're fast growing they'll get in there and they're not going to degrade the wood but they'll take the starch and then sometimes they're a little stubborn of giving up their territory so they will keep things from getting in there and starting the, the nerdy process of picking it apart, you know? And so <laughs> some of those are a little more competitive because they're like, I want the easy stuff now, you know? And right. then you'll, you'll get some organisms in the succession and definitely there's some like uh, Coprinus, if you know Coprinus and the inky caps, some the of the inky caps. caps yeah. yeah. Some of those are really destined for having something that's been pre-eaten. They just can't deal with the fresh wood but uh, you'll see them in like for here this is I'm in Minnesota, so we call it the boulevard between the sidewalk and the road. We have trees in the boulevard. There's always some management of the trees and some dye. And so you'll get stumps and you'll see those coprinus come out of there after a long period of time when you don't even know there's a stump there anymore. And um, that's like classic coprinus where it's eating wood uh, in some form, but it's going to have been pre-digested through this succession. So those are a late succession species. Mm. And you'll get some others that are in there early and then some that are sort of along the, the midway along the succession. And um, it's a neat thing to track. There's a history, a historical contingency, some people would call it, where 
uh, whoever wins that early part of the combat sets the stage for who can win in the next set of events and it might be to get them out of there to say look you're you're getting old you're you know you've done what you need to do move out where it's time for us to move in that process may be you know uh, more amenable to some fungi than others and the ultimate head start that these organisms will get is in is actually in the tree while it's still alive so if you go and cut a tree down and look using DNA-based sequencing, you can see who's there. And there's always going to be lots of fungi, a um, very surprising number. And some handful of those organisms, maybe 10% are uh, saprotrophs that are in there dealing with a lot of stress and just waiting for their chance to whip out the toolbox and start the process. And I, I think this is still a hypothesis in the Schilling lab, but I think... That is something that involves a relationship between the tree and the saprotroph um, in terms of who's allowed to be there in the first place. Mm. And I think those fungi are dealing with a lot of stress and combat is not what they want. They want to be able to get as much time when the tree dies before it hits the ground to do their business before they have to do any fighting. So there's a strategy in there, I think, but... That's one of the things we're studying in the, in the lab. <laughs> well, and it eliminates something interesting when you think about endophytes, uh, which we've talked right. about in the show. And a lot of people, I mean, endophytes, fungi living in plants. But when you think that, hey, some of these might be latent saprobes just waiting, just waiting to be first in line right. uh, when, this, when this plant falls apart. Uh, but I love that idea that maybe it's mediated somehow by... Yeah, I don't know how that right. would work, but but the plant using some kind of chemical signaling or or the fungi using some kind of chemical signaling to trick the plant or right some gatekeep gatekeeping mechanism or something. It's like ah, it's okay if you squat here for a while, you know, as long as you don't make too much <laughs> don't make too much noise, don't leave a mess, please. You know, this is this you're okay. That's fine. If you, we we can put up with you. We can <laughs> we put up, can with, put you. up with you. <laughs> and, well, and we talk about you know succession and and some of the competition that goes on. Generally, when we're talking about like a broad forest ecology, does a diversity of different wood decomposers indicate anything to us about the health of a forest? Hmm. Well, that's another, that's a great question. And I, I would say, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we have an answer yet. You know, I think we're learning a lot. You might have other people on this show actually that would, that would feel more comfortable having an answer to that. But uh, my sense is that we're still just learning who's there. Right. Even since I've started, you know, I, I'm getting, I'm aging a bit. So I've been around for a while. You know, when I first came here, I didn't do anything uh, related to looking at the whole community. I worked mostly with model fungi. And when we started looking at the whole communities, I had certain things in a nutshell where I wanted to see who was there. And I'd never been this, able to see that before. And it happens to be a lot of organisms in there. And that I assume that diversity enables a lot of different outcomes depending on the environment which is probably a healthy thing, you know, uh, that's similar to growth, you know, the more options that are there, the more resilient it is as a system. But I, and I have had that thought before, we actually have a pretty famous study here at the university on that diversity resilience connection with a person, Dave Tillman, who's a very well-known ecologist and pretty straightforward result, but that's been road tested and um, supported over and over. And I've always wondered, you know, does that fit for, the saprotrophs or the decomposers in general. And, you know, that's yin to the yang. If it's going to be like that when you build something, what about when you take it back down? It's a cycle. So I would assume there's a relationship there, but I, I honestly um, can't answer that, at least with my knowledge. So it's a great question. Yeah. Well, and I think a great answer is that a lot of this, you know, as much as we're talking about things that I think a lot of people, yeah, of course, 
fungi decompose wood. I mean, there's so much though still to know about who's who the players involved. And when you talk about a greater ecology, you know, this question kind of went along with that, but the idea of how does this affect community assembly? You know, by what decomposers are there, how does that affect the next succession of plant life and who gets there first? You know, that always that question of the stochastic arrival, how does that transform? Right. Which of course are these questions where we talk about long cycles. I mean, how, yeah. how are you, you going to watch an entire ecology for hundreds of years? It's true. And it's like, it's, it just begs for collaboration. You know, when I, yeah. when you first start uh, for me, at least, you know, my sense of just starting as a faculty member, you want to try to answer everything, you know, and you're, you're kind of like trying to situate yourself. It's um, it can be kind of stressful for sure. And there's a, just a lot of moving parts. And so there's a point at which you start realizing like, oh my gosh, you know, I could probably answer this 10 times faster if I just ask someone who's already, <laughs> do- <laughs> someone who's already doing it. And that's one too, you know, if I want to know when something's going to get into a tree and that, that assembly dynamic in this living tree, I, I should probably talk to somebody like Matt Casson, who was on the show, you know, I need a, right. I need a forest pathologist. I need somebody who understands that relationship or that would go a lot quicker. And, um, there are a lot of those kinds of questions that are emerging, um, and that I feel comfortable more and more comfortable asking around. And another one is bacteria. There are all these bacteria that are there. Those are the going to be the sugar stealers, you know, so maybe they're enabling or disabling these. Um, they probably play a pretty big role in shaping where these fungi can, you know, do business well right. or where they fail. And the same is true for viruses. And that's just a whole ball of wax. It looks tough to study, but there are people that do it and it's important. So yeah, there are all these collaborative, all these ideas that, you know, ultimately, they need a collaborative group to, to help answer. So always sticks out as a theme throughout just looking at mycology. I think you could say microbiology in general, but that interdisciplinary or maybe it's called transdisciplinary yeah. approach yeah, really right. seems like a necessity when you're dealing with some of these massive questions with so many different organisms involved. Uh, but one big thing when we think about wood decomposing fungi is their impact on the carbon cycle. Uh, and I know people have made suppositions about the amount of carbon that could be sequestered and really even like forest management policies about, hey, make sure you bury the wood so that these decomposers are able to activate and we're sequestering that carbon. As kind of an overview from your research and looking at these systems, what is that interplay between wood decomposers and the overall carbon cycle in the forest? That's a great question. The um, And that I think is actually, that's another one where I arrived at my my sort of like feeling or sense of purpose there due to the work of someone else. Uh, and I, uh, uh, there's one particular paper that really left an impression on me that was very tactical. There is something called earth systems modeling where they try to predict climate change in a nutshell, um, based on, um, all of these inter intermoving parts, um, of the carbon cycle, including wood decay, but, uh, plant decay, decomposition, plant growth. And so everything carbon, in nature is going to be sort of accounted for in these models. And uh, there was a paper, uh, Keenan et al., and I can't remember the specifics of the paper, but I, I just remember the title is something like Rate My Data. And of course, I'm a little biased, so I appreciated the conclusion, which made me useful. <laughs> I guess I, I, could, I could argue like, I'm important. This you know, validates but, me. Yeah. This validates me. <laughs> exactly. But um, it was uh, sort of a, a narrative there where wood, which is about 80% of the carbon pool that's above ground, but not floating around in the atmosphere that used to be wood, that 80% chunk was kind of assumed to be 
less important for these models because it was very slow moving. You know, it takes a very, very long time to put, to store the carbon in the wood, you know, potentially centuries. Like Itasca, we have pine trees up there that are over 300 years old. You know, they were around before any settlers, before uh, the Ojibwe were there. They were there when the Dakota were there in history. So there's like, they've seen some stuff and that's a long time for that carbon. And we would assume it may take just as long to uh, de-sequester or release all that carbon. So I think for that general reason that pool was overlooked for quite a while, but there were a couple of things in that paper that validated my existence or whatever. But one was the pool's huge, you know, that's in a nutshell. That was, it, it was much more scientific in its language, but that was what the takeaway was. It's, it's, it's huge people. So, and can't ignore on, it. Yeah. it can't ignore it. And on top of that, it's just, we're having trouble predicting it. We're having trouble predicting that. And part of that is that assembly history you're ta- you were talking about. I think it is hard based on abiotic variables or predisposing variables to predict the rate of decay because there are some what we would call non-redundant mechanisms. If a brown rot beats out a white rot, you've got a completely different story in the lignin, which will end up for the brown rotters, we think at least, going into the soils and that'll sequester it. And that's 25% of the carbon in the tree. So on top of that, there are these dynamics where those little fungi that want to get in there and get the starch first, they may be really recalcitrant or stubborn to leave, get out of there. And so that could stall things for decades. You know, that, and I've seen that. We have one of our hemlock logs in New Hampshire. There's some logs that in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. One, one of the hemlock logs is like still intact and uh, everything else gone, basically gone. And we're always asking like, what is that it? possible? What, what log number nine is just not, won't go away. Yeah, it's like everything else seems just fine. And we think it's just that an organism got in there and it, it just not given up quite yet. So you get these dynamics that make it hard to predict. And I think for those earth system modelers, they decided we should be paying attention to wood um, in the carbon cycle. So I've certainly tried to shift um, what I know about biology um, into this narrative of being, it being a, a trait, um, sort of a characteristic that we can use to try to help predict that biological aspect that is varying the outcome when these organisms compete for wood. So then there's a big carbon pool at stake. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, when you think about all those relationships, trying to codify that down to some statistical model where you're trying to track all these variables, you know, what percentage of log number nines are we going to have? How likely is it that, I mean, that just boggles, that absolutely boggles the mind. Me too. I I wish I could say like, well, you know, let me tell you how it works, but yeah, no idea. (laughs) It's just, uh, it's, uh, it's modeling and I praise the modelers. Yeah. We, we need them. That's right. (laughs) They do great. They do great work. That's right. Well, and you know, going along with that question, can you explain to us Jonathan's lignin uncertainty? What what is this new postulate or uncertainty? It's not a principle (laughs) or a law. It's an uncertainty. It's a deep uncertainty. It's Jonathan's deep thought while walking to work on a regular basis. (laughs) No, it is. um, It's that, lignin toggle or that that chunk of lignin that i mentioned you know that we think goes to the soil versus to the atmosphere and i have a very simple question and simple questions are good and actually somebody on my committee when i was getting my phd would say jonathan it's not simple it's elegant and i say yes right it's it's elegant and uh it's it's straightforward at the very least and that is we don't know 
what the global balance is of these two types or these types of fungi in general, how, how much of the world is brown rot. And by name alone, it's 7% of the North American species of wood decay fungi that are brown rot fungi, 85% white rotters. This is kind of dated taxonomy or dated information, but from a very good source. That's not a lot of species, but in terms of their ranges, those are in these northern forests, and those are pretty low in terms of their diversity, but they are giant in terms of their range. So one fu fungus like uh, Fomatopsis munciae used to be known as pinicola, the red banded polypore. Yes. Yeah, that one is everywhere. You know, then that thing, you'll see it. It's got some different species names, but it's doing something similar um, all the way across, you know, circumboreal, all the way around the world. So one shift in that fungus in terms of its existence, you know, if that were to go extinct for some reason, you know, that's going to make, that's going to leave a mark. You know, that's a large range forest of just spruce and fir and pine that is no longer going to see a brown rot fate. And the key lignin uncertainty, Jonathan's lignin uncertainty is we, we don't know how much brown rot is in there relative to the other types. And we don't think it's a huge percentage, but the other component, the uncertainty is what, how susceptible is it to a change in our climate? And all things point to that it may be prone to disappearing or at least to having some contraction. So even if it's only 10% of the decay that we see, the amount of lignin that is left behind in 80% of the earth's carbon above ground, that's a lot that's at stake. And so if it goes from even 10% to 5% um, as a, the planet warms, um, I think we've got a problem because that carbon will end up in the atmosphere instead of the ground. And right. it'll be there as a greenhouse gas, which will warm the planet, which could push it even further. And that's something called positive feedback. And it makes me nervous. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so to understand that um, balance, I think, is something that may take me the rest of my career. And maybe maybe I can't answer that. But I'd love to know what the balance is and what could make it tip. And that's something interesting when we think about environmental impacts, not just the direct anthropomorphic impact, but the idea of you're disrupting natural cycles. Right. This idea, yes, if you disrupt a natural player in this greater carbon cycle, that's going to have a massive, massive impact. Yep. And when you're asking some of these big questions and looking at these great cycles, maybe tell us a little bit about that difference of, you know, how you research these things in a lab environment, how you can kind of create a static environment, maybe our technical mason jar full of soil, and right. then how you look at questions differently out in the field. And I know that's a massive question to lay at your feet, but maybe kind of the differences between those kinds of research and maybe some of the different questions you ask and maybe where your work is is heading. Uh, yeah, and some of the differences in that work. Yeah, they're definitely they're definitely different. And they're, you'll even, they're kind of like cultures that will, you know, arise out of those, some of the differences, particularly for these kind of microbial sciences, because we can do amazing things in the lab with the organisms and the fungi are included. When, when I started, well, this, so this is thinking about the lab side of that question, the fungi that I had to work with when I started in 2006 uh, included none, no species or strains in those, in that brown rot category that um, had a genome um, that was sequenced or annotated. And to have a sequenced an or sequenced genome means somebody spent the time to tell us the sequence of A's and T's and G's and C's in the DNA. So it's like, these are the letters that we've got here. 
And then to annotate it means this is what they mean. You know, these are kind of like this passage means, you know, that it's going to make some carbohydrate um, active enzyme. So we did not have a sequenced and annotated genome to work with for these brown rot fungi until 2009. And that was well after I had started my faculty job. So actually the first really kind of watershed grant I don't know if that's the right word, watershed, but so, you know, it was an important, uh, big <laughs> right. deal for the, you know, you can imagine I you know, had some, there were some cheers going around at the house and among the lab, but it was an, it was an early career grant from, uh, the Department of Energy. And I was very enabled by that grant. The program, which is the biological and ecological research program, um, was so supportive. It was a, a really a neat moment. And it was in a nutshell to, to look at that genome that we now had in hand and to ask questions of how does it work? And um, it had a lot of potential or it, there still is a lot of interest in that mechanism for bioprocessing or taking any type of plant biomass and breaking it down to the sugars to then rebuild fuels or chemicals or anything you can do with sh uh, sugars. So the mechanism uh, is kind of on point, but it was a big deal. The fungus uh, was Rhodonia placenta. It used to be called Postia placenta. It's kind of a curious little fungus that I had never seen in the wild, you know, And but it was a model fungus that I knew all about. And since then, we've learned more and more about uh, these wood decay fungi. And I don't know how many genomes there are for the wood decayers, but I think last I checked, which is like two years ago or something, you know, it's like 40 or 35 or 40. It's very, it's almost limitless in terms of the types that you want to test and yeah. comparing things. And it has opened a box for me to go back to those questions that I might have when I'm on a hike, which is that fungus is here. Why? You know, like, why do I see it in these certain environments? I'm seeing certain patterns with these fungi. Are these related to um, the biology? And is there a way to uh, get outside with my work a little bit more and to kind of connect those deep analyses of how they use genes, how they express them, how they behave basically based on using uh, or based on those, those DNA technologies uh, to connect those as traits to these emergent properties in the field. Right. And in the field, it's, it's a whole different ball of wax. Um, the biggest difference in terms of the science is that instead of one fungus in a piece of wood, which it gets it done. You know, they'll decay the wood, no problem. Uh, we start looking at the whole communities um, in the trees and in these decaying pieces of wood, and you're talking like a hundred plus taxa of however you decide to label the taxa that are in there. They're like a hundred different characters um, or types that are in there at any given time, and it's 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 complex. Insanity, and yeah. It's insanity, yeah. So. Yeah. Trying to sort those out can be pretty daunting to somebody who's used to things kind of working out with five replicates and being fairly straightforward. You know, and all of a sudden you've got things called messy data, you know, that um, is pretty different. And I, so I think things get a little more reliant on statistics um, to deconvolute things. And I think they also demand a really thoughtful experimental design not only to try to reduce the, the noise in those data sets, but because a lot of times you're dealing with much longer time frames. And so, like I said, you know, some of the, you know, if I was to watch a full size old growth red pine from Itasca State Park rot, 
it'll take many generations of, you know, people, you know, as long as my kids still have kids and they have kids, you know, like somewhere down the line, someone would collect the results that we need from something that in the lab, you know, we might be able to get from a piece of wood in at least a few months or something. So mm-hmm. it demands something different, you know, and it, it's hard to fund. It's a little hard or you have to be kind of clever to figure out ways to keep getting out there to gather the results. And at least at Itasca, but as it is in many places, there are a whole host of other things to consider that are a mix of adventure and uh, logistics um, in terms of being in the wilderness. But uh, but it's a it's a joy. I, I I really like it because I feel like I'm connecting even deeper to these organisms, and it's you know I don't know if that's cre- creepy, crazy, or what, but it's it's a joy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think developing more intimate relationships with more than human organisms, uh, I think as Merlin Sheldrick coined the term, offers a lot to the human experience. But yeah. I think, you know, this goes hand in hand with that question of applied uses. That's yeah. why I wanted to, to lay that out is as someone then who has done research kind of on both ends of, of that spectrum, very contained lab experiment to kind of field massive changes over long time scales. Right. What do both the capacities for wood decomposition, but more generally, I mean, their ability to be enzymatic factories. When we think about biotechnology, you know, a lot of that work is in using the architecture a fungal organism has to regulate certain amounts of, or, or certain creation of compounds that may have that same fungus produce some new enzymes. So, I mean, right. in, in that realm of possibility from leveraging either the natural processes these organisms already engage in to maybe doing something entirely novel with their biomachinery, as it were, what are some applied uses that that jump out to you uh, from using the, these different classes of, fun, of wood decomposers? Right, yeah, that's a great, another great question. The, I think the area or sort of the applied arena I first kind of onboarded into was as a faculty member was the biofuels. Um, there was an interest when I started really like a blitz or something, you know, towards ethanol. And I'm in Minnesota here. So there was like, it's the breadbasket of the middle part of the United States. And there's this corn ethanol plants popping up like everywhere, you know, in every corner, yeah. it felt like kind of over overshot, I think uh, a bit, but that was all based on starch, you know, the corn kernel, pretty straightforward. And I always said, you know, I I grew up in West Virginia. I think we've pretty much figured out how to make uh, alcohol from corn. Um, You know, we've had that, (laughs) we've had that figured out for a while. You know, it's like, how good can you distill? I'm guessing I grew up around some people that were pretty, pretty damn good. (laughs) Right. Uh, right. But um, that is ancient technology, but uh, to try to get um, ethanol or some other biofuels out of the rest of the plant is a possibility um, because of all of those sugars that are present. And in terms of that fungal story, um, the obvious inroads for me was studying an organism, a group of organisms that I could always say they have figured out how to sustainably make energy from everything else in the corn plant. So maybe we should take a look. You know, they are doing this uh, sustainably. We are having trouble doing it in part really because that final product is so low low value in a liquid fuel but if you look at, at the rest of that sequence you know so if my fungi were going to be involved with that process they would have been involved in the deconstruction part so it's like the, here comes the dynamite 
Schilling's dynamite certainty, you know, that, that would be step one. Um, but that would just obliterate everything. And then, then what? And so you'd have to have enzymes to break down the final bits, um, to get the, the glucose or the simple sugars out of there that would be fermentable. And then it would need to be fermented before, you know, my West Virginia roots would come back in for the distillation at the end. <laughs> and if you look at it, I remember having this thought at some point, you look at it, you hear from people working on bacteria, you always kind of look over the fence and you're like, God, it looks easy over there because it's <laughs> easy to easy to transform those organisms, easier to genetically modify. They're small, they grow quickly. They don't have to worry about the contamination issues. But if you look at the process of that treatment and the enzymes to break down the cellulose and hemicellulose and the fermentation, it's all fungal. Um, and that's, you've got, of course, yeasts in the fermentation step. We've figured those out again, um, for thousands many years. Of years of history, yeah. thousands of years of history. We got it right the first time. And those organisms involved in the enzymatic uh, stage two, which we would call saccharification, which means taking the saccharides, taking it down to the saccharides. Those are from Trichoderma, what used to be Viridae and now called Trichoderma ricei. Deep history and studying Trichoderma, that could be another fantastic podcast. It's a curious and cool history with Trichoderma from the world wars and, um, and studying those cellulase systems. But those are the enzymes that are going to be in there, and they're amended with a, uh, an enzyme called cellobiase um, or beta-glucosidase, and that is from Aspergillus niger. And uh, those are both super producers of enzymes. They are tried and true. We use them in all kinds of industrial settings without even knowing that they go into our products or go into our use. And, and uh, so those were already in the system. So to add my fungi to the mix would be just another fungus and a fungal process. So that is kind of the, the inroads there that I had to those fungi being involved. Well, it's an interesting question for, you know, their capacity to break down complex plant material, there must be some kind of usage there. And when we think about a broader forest ecology, has anyone looked at this idea? Again, I brought up that kind of idea of carbon sequestration and make sure the wood is, you know, touching the ground so it gets inoculated more quickly. Is there kind of this idea? And maybe this runs totally counter to, you know, the precautionary principle. Let's not just throw decomposers out everywhere. Yeah. But has there been any thought to, to some kind of like land or forest management by introducing certain decomposers or playing or somehow affecting this succession? Or, or like I said, do those ideas kind of just get thrown to the side saying, hey, we can't mess with the ecology like that? We, you know, I've, uh, I guess I know where you're coming from. I've had these thoughts and I'm not sure how to like complete the circuit on them. Um, I, I will say at first, it's a, it's a, it's a good question though, to, to think about these things because we do, we like to think about these, these ways for one, are there ways that we could control this process and, you know, in ways that might, um, stymie the, these problems or whatever. Right. It's also, um, yeah, I just, I think it's um, kind of curious to think about carbon sequestration in terms of planting trees, it's sort of a base level. I, I think it's gotten really popular lately uh, for to plant trees, you know, so I, you know, I'm going to take a Delta flight to San Francisco. I'd like to buy some carbon offsets. Hopefully they go plant a tree. And so then I feel better. I get a number that says, you know, this tree is going to offset this much carbon. And then I, f I can fly guilt free. And I, of course, study organisms that break that tree down. So I wonder like, what's the plan? You know, like, how does this work? And I'm sure good modeling has gone into this uh, process, I think, but I'm not sure about that. And I, uh, I kind of think that that's a, a curious 
way, I think, to think about these decomposers. It's a little bit different, but in terms of being a part of this discussion of uh, sequestering carbon in trees, because I, among the scientists, at least, I know that sort of cure-all um, idea has taken some shots lately in the past couple of years that it's, um, you know, you can't, if, a, if there's grassland that's perfectly healthy and then you try to plant trees because you're hell-bent on planting trees and you, you may actually reduce the amount of carbon sequestered by plant type and then those trees may die. So that's not good. So um, there needs to be some forethought. We're humans. Right. So we, do the, we do this kind of stuff. But, you know, there's a, I think this other component to that story that has a little bit has some space for exploration, which is how, what's the longevity of these trees and how do we account for the carbon that is re-released and we know that the re-release process is not uh, that predictable. So how are we going to embed this in these carbon offsets that I, that I get when I fly or, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Well, and that idea that maybe it's not as straightforward as, you know, these wood decomposers break out carbon and it just goes in the soil and never goes back in the air. And that's it. That's the end of the story. I wish it was that simple sometimes for my own sake, but you're right. And, uh, you know, the other thing is the fungus eats it. So there's there's that. I always try, uh, there was a period of time where I kind of ignored that. But um, actually the same person at Yale, Mark uh, Bradford, he, he mentioned that to me one time and gave it a name of, of carbon use efficiency called Q. And the fungi will modulate how much of that carbon that they put into their own bodies to grow. And uh, that that was an aha moment for me, actually, that. I realized like uh, it was more of like a, oh, you know, maybe like a holy whatever, you know, uh, curse word uh, there. Like was like, oh, man, <laughs> I have been. Yeah, I've been oversimplifying. Uh, I need to think about that, that aspect of things, too. How much is the fungus eating? Where does the fungus go when it dies? And are we missing kind of this this shunt in that process that I had oversimplified? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And more and more, too, when I hear about, you know, solutions and ideas like that seem, oh, that's so simple and so pure, just more decomposition happening equals, you know, more carbon sequestered. You know, now I've learned through being disillusioned enough times that it's probably a little bit more complicated than that. So I I appreciate you kind of teasing that apart for us. Uh, Another one that I wanted to throw at you, and I don't think these are necessarily sacred cows, but just things I've heard that, uh, you know, when you, when you get a wood decomposer expert, it's time to bring out all, all the, uh, all the urban (laughs) legends, if you will. But, but this idea of coal being wood that was around before lignolytic enzymes were a thing before fungi could decompose wood that right. wood just turned into coal but what do you think about that idea <laughs> that is that's a that's a dicey one right there that um that has generated some debate i've seen the debates i've not been participant thank goodness and uh, <laughs> I've, wa- I've watched those from a distance and i will say when i first there, there's there was some science uptick around that idea of molecular clock analysis where they'd go back look through evolutionary history and try to date the evolution of certain um types of organisms and uh, lo and behold you know there's some something that looked like like good timing in terms of when we stopped uh producing coal and fossil fuel beds you know and that uh, was coincident with an uptick in lignin degrading evolution the evolution of lignin degrading white rot fungi so I was sold uh, when I first read that, but I think sold in a way that was just, you know, it's good narrative, you know, like you're, you're, 
it's just like, wow. And I can remember actually telling my brother that. And, um, he was like, that's curious, you know, interesting. And he re kind of revisited that maybe a year later, you know, it really stuck like, yeah, that makes total sense. But at the same time, somewhere around in there, it, it generated debate. And there's another paper and I, I've used this teaching and I can't remember specifics beyond which, beyond the title, which was, uh, very deliberate. Like we're not going to mess around with the title here. It's going to be real clear, you know, that this title means that study was wrong, you know? And so it is somebody who was doing analyses on CO2 in the atmosphere. And, uh, in a nutshell, that argument was like, well, if these fungi came into the stage and we all of a sudden had the degradation of lignin, here's how much lignin is out there at that time on earth. Uh, why don't we see that in the CO2 signatures in the atmosphere? And the conclusion was because that study's wrong, you know, so, so that was the debate. And um, it's always good. Debate is healthy in science. Right. Uh, sometimes it's a funny thing to think about how the public views that when scientists disagree on things. Um, I think we the engagement side of my job, I think part of it is uh, I'm very committed to trying to bring stories like that, you know, uh, up to the upfront, they're normal. These are all nice people. I know some of these scientists involved with these studies and they're great. You know, these are just typically conclusions that come near the end after a little bit of speculation, but they provide the fodder to go a little deeper to understand um, these processes and to do follow-ups. And that's just how science works. It's never, never a final product. It's always a process. And to try to educate I think ourselves as scientists, for one, for how to deliver these stories so that it doesn't seem like uh, we just enjoy tearing each other down and that we never know an answer. But the flip side to try to let the public know, you know, this is just how it works. You know, this is this is an ongoing process. This is how we answer stuff. This is how we figure things out. And these basic science studies are important for us to understand how things work so we can adapt in an uncertain future or to an uncertain future. That's how we got here. It's how we got ahead. Um, and these types of studies and the debate that's around them is, is critical for us to keep advancing as, as society. So um, well, I love, I love that. Yeah. It's the sacred cow. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if nothing else, that kind of debate is always thought provoking, even for the layman. And then to kind of understand, I mean, I have the luxury of being able to speak with experts like yourself to pull apart some of the, you know, the, the underlying assumptions and correlations people make in formulating these theories. But I think even understanding that, understanding how the theory was formulated teaches right. you a lot and gets you to learn a lot about the system when you're seeing how someone's mind works and they're put, trying to put together a picture of it. I mean, a time scale that's absolutely massive and there's no way, it's so unwieldy, but right. to see kind of the tools being brought to the table, the analysis being brought to the table, I think is, is very educational. And that's why more and more I've kind of learned you have respect for the truth. I, I don't want to say I don't care what the truth is, but you kind of honor this liminal space of the mystery of I can see both ways. And there's actually a lot to be learned from, from yeah. seeing that the arguments going toward both sides. Definitely. Yeah. That's well-spoken. Yeah. Well, and you talk about your role then as a, as a communicator. Um, I mean, let's talk a little bit about your recent work and maybe we can start with, you know, if there's any recent study or ongoing research that you want to talk about, because uh, we've talked in very general terms about kind of this whole discipline of studying wood decomposers. Uh, but what what is some recent research, whether it's at, in the lab or there at Itasca, which sounds now like this magical, boreal place I want to visit. Uh, <laughs> tell us about some of that recent research. I will mention, I there's some bugs up there. You know, it's a, it's got its moments. It's 
a curated space for the adventurous, I think. So, um, uh, but it is. It, uh, right now, it's going to be close to zero and a nice white uh, bed of snow down for some <laughs> skiing. So, But it's chilly. It's a dry cold. Yeah. It's a dry cold. Um, we, have, we generally have two areas in, in the lab uh, that we focus on, and it's basically how to how do it tends to be brown rot fungi, but how do wood degrading fungi eat, and what are the implications and applications of that process? And um, I can tell you a kind of a cool uh, study recently that was um, related to the kind of ROS mechanism that has actually been in the hands of two two graduate students here working on different aspects of this. But if you think about uh, anthropomorphically, if you think about these fungi throwing dynamite as their mechanism, you don't want to get caught with a stick of dynamite in your hand and the wick too short. And so it's like Wiley e. Coyote, you know, always out fooling, out, outwitting himself. Um, you don't want to be Wiley e. Coyote. You want to get the, uh, you know, get this at a distance from, from them. And so they orchestrate this, this process in a way that we in our lab kind of discovered, I guess is the appropriate word, but uh, there were hypotheses or suppositions on how this worked before, and it was all related to a, a gradient of pH and a gradient of porosity in the wood cell wall. And without going into detail, it was kind of like a, a spatial gradient where the dynamite really wouldn't light until it was a certain distance from the fungal hyphae when they're inside of a wood cell. And um, there was a differential in pH and a differential in porosity. So it wasn't going to become active until it was well away from the fungus. And there were some, some holes in it as a hypothesis, but it made sense in general, but it, it was very hard to see that. And so it kind of remained a mystery with some uh, supporting data, but we just, we didn't know completely, but that's the way I learned it when I was going through my PhD. And um, so we, a while ago, published something in a journal called The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And I, um, it's like, I joke, it's, it's like, that's my, I might have topped out at that, with that paper, but it was, a uh, basically where we learned, where we learned, and this is with a postdoc named Jiwei Zhang, who's now faculty here actually at the University of Minnesota. And all, like hats off a million times to Jiwei, cause this was his, his doing for the most part. But we learned that instead of those gradients of pH and porosity, the fungus is um, expressing genes differentially, meaning that where the tip is in its active growth area, it's got some genes on or off that it then turns on or off differentially further back. So there may be a gene at the front that's related to this uh, production of the dynamite agent, which is the reactive oxygen species that's on right at the tip, but then it will quickly turn it off um, so that uh, those further behind sections aren't exposed to that really brutal environment, potentially brutal environment. And we call that the two-step. And that's what explained, and we've seen it again and again and again, which is pretty gratifying, honestly. We, we published it and it shot high, and but to see it on a regular basis over and over, um, still gratifying. Each time we see that pattern, um, it's the truth. You know, we, we, we figured out the truth. But it uh, uses that technique to differentially express the genes to keep the, the very reactive stuff at the front and then those enzymes that it has left in its genome to deal with the carbohydrates and the sugars. Um, it waits to express those until it's safe. And then it produces those and they go out into an environment that's not uh, riddled with this reactive oxygen species. So pretty cool. And um, the, the more recent thing 
Uh, there are two things. There's a graduate student in the lab named Claire Anderson. She's been doing things that at even higher resolution, um, right at the fungal tips and getting mm-hmm. in there at a hundred micron distance from the hyphal tips using cryo sectioning and a very sensitive um, RNA sequencing tool um, called single cell RNA seq. And we do that at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory as a collaboration. That's in Pasco, Richland, Washington, um, is a Department of Energy laboratory with some very fancy equipment and some great uh, scientists. So she's been there to visit. Um, it's been a cool PhD project for her, and she's kind of seen what happens right at the tip. And she has shown that uh, this the fun, fungi that we study are not coming in guns blazing, as we call it, but they're also induced right at the tip to begin producing that dynamite sequence of the ROS. And so even that is inducible. It won't just produce it willy-nilly. It will kind of, and this is anthropomorphic, but kind of make sure that it's doing it um, at the right place. And so the other thing was uh, with another, so Claire's on an NSF uh, graduate research fellow fellowship. She's, she's great. And there was another student, Jesus Castaño, who's from the country of Colombia, and he was on a Fulbright. He has just recently graduated with his PhD, but he was looking at another part of that mechanism, which was kind of couched in this question of like, if you are if you're going to do that and go in with some dynamite ROS, um, that's some dangerous stuff. Is there Are there other mechanisms to protect you that are not just about differentially expressing the genes, but if there is some of that ROS around, is there a tolerance mechanism? Right. And there is. And we've uh, seen that in comparison with those white rot ancestor uh, strains that it produces enzymes later, but that are also going to tend to be very tolerant of the ROS. So they've adapted their enzymes to deal with more stress in the environment. And on top of that, there are some metabolites that are produced to quench any excess ROS that might be produced or hanging around after that first flush gets through there. So it's this orchestrated two-step mechanism. So it's pretty deep. Uh, It involves some fancy tools that like there's transcriptomics and we've done proteomics which is looking at all the proteins the secretomics everything that the fungus secretes and more recently for that uh, stuff with jesus metabolomics looking at all the metabolites including what's released from wood and the fungus and huge they're huge data sets i'm just a complete like you know i just i can't hang with that at all <laughs> and so <laughs> instead this, this these students and postdocs are just just blows my mind in terms of their ability to do something we would call informatics, which is using tools to distill those data down to their meaning and and get at the truth. And it's it's pretty amazing. So, and the picture they the picture they put together of the lifestyle and just that process yeah. suddenly I can visualize it so much better and to make sure I'm understanding. So the ROS is produced. The upregulation happens at the tip of that, I guess those hyphal tips closest, I would assume, proximally to the right. wood they're trying to decompose. They create those ROS, but then almost to avoid fallout, they're also creating, they're also modulating enzymes because the enzymes to decompose the carbohydrates will come in later, right? They'll exude those later. Most of them, yeah. So they're making those more resilient to getting any blowback, not that it's radioactivity, but any blowback right. from that ROS. <laughs> and then they're also putting out metabolites or when you said the wood, I'm thinking the wood is also there are metabolites coming out of that process that may downregulate the ROS. So yeah, you're throwing the bomb and then, okay, qu- quench the bomb now, <laughs> yeah, send in the enzymes. Yeah. That's mind blowing that they have that much control over right. their external 
environment. Yeah. And that's, yep. That's like the moment where I'm like, it, we need somebody who is like an evolutionary biologist to be like, yes, that's how evolution works, Jonathan. You know, that- <laughs> <laughs> this, but this all makes sense how we I, arrived uh, here. That, but to me, I'm with you. It's like, it seems like a minor miracle. Like, how does all that stuff work? How did that happen? You know, and how did that, I mean, multiple times, like these are organisms that never saw each other. They evolved in completely different spheres, and yet they're just like, that's just how it went down. And it, it must be, you know, some environmental pressures that have, there are principles around, you know, what can or cannot work, and they're sort of governed by those and the genes that they have to work with to begin with. But beyond that, yeah, it seems like a minor miracle. So, yeah. Well, that's just a, that's just a fascinating process to learn about that. That humble wood decomposition has a lot going on. The fungus isn't just because you think the rock star thing is to produce some compound that can break apart wood or avoid lignin altogether, and to think that there's so much more that goes into it than that. Right. Well, where can people? connect more with your work there at the University of Minnesota, at Itasca, where's the best place people can learn more? Because now I know people are going to want to read about more studies and more findings in this. Sure. I think the two easiest things I can mention in terms of the research are um, articles that I've written as the first author. And usually I, it's a little bit of gas bagging, I would call it in the introduction. You know, there's going to be an introduction that's just like four score and seven years ago, you know, there were two fungi met in the woods and the wood was, was misty and mystical, you know. So most of the other papers we write are just like, we, we know why we're all here. Um, so let's go deep. You know, we did a right. huge study and here, come, here it comes. So there are a couple of articles that, that have me, uh, given a little more of an introduction and, both of them are open source papers. Uh, so depending on what we do, some, sometimes we publish in open source so that everyone has access. And sometimes they're, they're not if it's something that, and I think that I, I may change my opinion on this in some day, but if, if it's so technical that no one's going to be able to do it that doesn't already have access to the paper, it couldn't just email me and I could share it with them, then uh, it's probably not worth it. But I don't know. That's another, another conversation. But these are both right. available open source, meaning you can Google it and um, see it from your laptop, no matter who you are. And one of them is in 2015. The paper is in a journal called PLOS One. Long history for why I ended up in that journal, but PLOS, the Public Library of Science, One, it was their flagship journal, all open source. And it's got a pretty good introduction. And in the title is the word signatures. And I can't offhand remember the, the full title, but that'll uh, Google will get you there. The word signatures and then plus one and then Jonathan fungus. That'll probably do it. And the other paper in similar vein was a, somewhat of an update on that paper. And that is in a, a Frontiers Journal. I think Frontiers of Microbiology and uh, similarly is open source. It's a 2020 paper and it similarly goes into some background uh, in the introduction that I think I think is approachable is meant to be written so that uh, or is written in meant, meant to be approachable so could help somebody kind of wade in at zero entry into the world of uh, wood decay and both of those are going to embed the Jonathan's lignin uncertainty without saying it calling it that because um, I don't probably shouldn't do that but it it'll it'll get to that kind of story in there too and it will connect biology with ecology uh, through the sort of traits and characters of these wood decay fungi. So those would be pretty good. Um, the other thing for um, Itasca would probably be just to w- visit the website. And it's a really cool field station. I'll just mention it's been there since uh, in operation since uh, 1907. It was formed during the kind of forestry push with uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot. There's a really neat history around forestry and it's in all its old growth forest up in northern Minnesota. It's really, it is very special. 
place. And uh, the history of the station is cool. And I'm really pushing that, that word community in the introduction you gave yes. it means a lot to me. So I trying to get, you know, kind of get that field station to be more inclusive for one and uh, more progressive and more community oriented as kind of a common ground space for science and in many shapes and forms and many, I think, avenues for discussing climate that include things like art. So that's, uh, it means a lot to me. Um, and the website will help get you there. And if there's one thing to kind of get a pulse for the station might be to look at the current newsletter. Um, that'll be obvious on the website. And that is, I think this is again from memory, but IBSL for the Itasca Biological Station and Laboratories, IBSL at UMN. Um, and it's in the CBS website cbs.umn.edu backslash Itasca, which is I-T-A-S-C-A. Just in hearing you describe it and getting kind of the mental imagery, it sounds like a beautiful place to, to do research. So I think you picked a great spot. But yeah, I, I would also seem to be a great locus for any kind of biological exploration. I mean, because I am the amateur foraging community you think about people coming out for mushroom forays biodiversity blitzes yeah uh, so do you think that kind of stuff might be in the future oh yeah we already uh people show up already from the paul bunyan club uh which is in bemidji and um i paul first bunyan heard of the club the paul bunyan club. fantastic they're active man they're, um they yeah people will show up the first time i was like paul bunyan cool all right so there's a mushroom club over there in Bemidji. And I think the per as I remember, the person, I can't remember who it was, but it was just like, yes, it's just a small operation. You know, it's just a few of us who whip it together here and there to get outside and look for fungi. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, and then it's like, oh, somebody else from the Paul Bunyan Club. And it's like, you know, and eventually I'm like, how many of you are there over there? You know, and <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're at, there's, there's, they're busy. So I, um, the, I think the Nama foray was up there. I want to say 50 or 51 years ago, something like that. There was discussion of trying to do a, Nama foray. COVID has obliterated that potential. <laughs> but um, there was discussion of trying to revisit and uh, part of the North American Mycoflora project too, to to get up, back up to Itasca and revisit, which would be just so cool. And I, um, it's a great place for things like that. We have a lot of space for groups. We can house maybe 130, 140 people. I think our max is 150 or 160, but it's a, it's a pretty big facility. It would be a cool place to do it. It's in all that old growth, which was my original draw. It's on a lake that's the headwaters or the purported supposed headwaters of the Mississippi River, and everybody comes to the park um, for that reason. But the people at the station are there for a variety of reasons, and I'm there for the old growth and all the mushrooms. It's, it is, it's paradise for that. It sounds like it. And as someone who then has kind of the demands of an academic and research, how much yeah. do you think you, you get out and commune with that forest? Is it a weekly ritual? Is it a daily? Uh, what, what is that like? It's my, I will say my job up there has, is challenging. It is, it's kind of a beast, but at the same time, I, you know, during the summer, I'm, it's, you're immersed in it. It's not like I have to go to work to be in the forest. I like, right. I, I walk over to the dining hall and I see stuff, you know, like it is, <laughs> um, it's all around you. So there's, it's a gradient of time out in the woods, but I, I do, I spend a lot, I mean, a lot of time out. And so I'm in con uh, constant commune with the fungi for sure. And everything else, you know, my, my birding is up a notch. I'm doing well in the birding category and I, I, I see everything, you know, bears and there are wolves there. There's all kinds of stuff. So you'll see anything at any time on a given moment. And it's always an adventure. Yeah. Trying to rekindle that, that 
connection yeah. that fire sparked on that Appalachian Trail journey. I can totally see that. That's it. Yeah. And then kind of a big question, but what in your mind, what is the future do you think of researching wood decomposers? I mean, what are the big burning questions you think? And we talked about some of them, but what are the big burning questions you think remain when it comes to wood decomposing fungi that you see on the horizon? I do think, you know, the my lignin uncertainty, it's it's not mine. I, I you know, that's a, just like any science. It's built on the shoulders of others. The it's built around the collaborative ideas of colleagues. And I do, I think it's a big question. I think we need to figure out what we're looking at in terms of a, of a warmer future, a more unpredictable future in terms of climate. And these fungi are playing a role and I know about the fungi. So I want to contribute. I think that's where a lot of us are coming from is to try to figure out how to help. And a part of that, I think too, is something that relates to engagement. I think we've learned, I hope we've learned in the last seven, eight years that not everyone trusts what we're doing. And it, uh, you know, if we're kind of trapped in our worlds, it doesn't make any sense that that exists or that somebody wouldn't trust what we're doing because we are just normal people that have a job that's meant to seek the truth. And we're hoping that it will help society in many cases, at least. And so it almost hurts, but I think at the same time, it's partly our fault. I think we need to get out. I think we need to uh, make community with people that are different than us. I think uh, we need to do that. And some of the venues aren't going to be that glitzy. Um, it may not be, I call it the red circle podium uh, for like a TED talk, you know, that, that might be, and I don't mean to disparage TED talks, but that might be a sensational moment for a lot of people. But, um, you know, you always wonder how many people in the audience are disagree with the person in the, in the red circle, probably not many. And, um, right. you know, it's a place like Itasca. Sometimes you'll run into these moments or you'll have these moments where you are sitting at a picnic table with like four people and they may all disagree with you. you know. And so you're <laughs> like, well, I th maybe this is more important. <laughs> and I have those moments. And so I think that's not really related to, it's not exactly answering your question in terms of the research side of things, but I do, I think more and more, and this could be because I'm full professor and I'm a little older, but I just feel like I'm, there's a limit to what I've been doing. I'm ready to stretch. I'm ready to take some risks and get out there at the picnic tables and try to make a difference and to try to share this with the modelers as well on the regulatory side so that we can figure out how to stem our own demise. And um, we need to do it. As a, that's, you know, uh, I think, A1 for the future. Well, and we talk about, you know, this kind of communication and bringing this information to two people. Or we talk about communicating these ideas and making the science more approachable. And part of that equation as well is opening things up for a reciprocity, right? which I think ultimately in talking with yourself and so many people, I don't know if mycology is a unique discipline in this way, and it may not be, but it seems like always exemplified is this idea of a reciprocal relationship with, uh, we were saying right before the show, with the quote yeah. unquote amateur and the academic, right. kind of facilitating that two-way communication is a huge part to any future research. Right, definitely. I had this, this is a funny thought. So I first, that's well-spoken and I agree. And I, I had this funny thought um, on the uh, walk over here 
and it was something it was for some it was not thinking about like hey i'm gonna be on a podcast maybe i'll bring this <laughs> up <laughs> but it was the uh if you remember that show the a team you know the the a team was of everybody remembers you know the, like that was you know they had their own quirks as a team but everyone had the like their own function you know there's like there's the smart guy you know and there's the guy who like can get into the criminal mind and there's like the muscle and the the smooth talker <laughs> so, that was like they all kind of came together i think you know there is like there's a there's a point at which like if you're going to do something and get it done it's going to require collaborating with you know and putting together your a team and the a team is not going to be like let's put it together all the scientists because you know they are that that combination it's like no that is just a bunch of the smart people <laughs> so are the people that are doing the academic thing we need somebody to you know to make someone want to want to help you know like we need an empathy lever somebody with maybe the artists would be the people to ask like how can we make people care and uh how can we um you know maybe flesh out funding opportunities that would enable this um how can we like atasca you know how can we involve indigenous communities those are people that are the in community there. And so, you know, it's not as easy as, as throwing money at um, issues or trying to assume that somebody would really understand immediately how important we are as scientists. No, um, we need to uh, find integrated solutions. And um, these things just involve a lot of conversation, I think, and community building. But to try to put those, the A-team together, because there are times where if you had if you could break it all down, you're staring at a problem that all parties are interested in fixing. So even if we're coming from different cultures and approaches, you know, there is a moment to agree that we, we need to fix a problem. So how to, what's the solution and how can we put ourselves together in the best way to do it? So, Community science is the future of scientific endeavor in a lot of ways, those different perspectives, people willing to ask questions that maybe, you know, get overlooked for whatever reason. It really, really interesting concept. And, and kind of going along with that for people who are listening who want to be involved in mycology. And I, I guess whether that's academic or not, uh, but if people want to get involved in mycology, want to start doing some of this research, what, what would be your advice to people out there? I've actually given this advice recently for someone who was interested in taking uh, my course. And I think they were really interested in mushroom ID, which is great. But uh, the course has, you know, there's a moment where, you know, we might be talking about like cell, how the cell wall works. And we might be using like our programming to, to deal with some statistics from an Amplicon sequencing run with DNA. And it's like, I told this person, like, I, I don't know if this is what you want to get into, but this is what it is, you know? So and they were like, oh, you know, I didn't see that coming. So I don't know. So um, this it looks like too much. You know, I just want to know the mushrooms in the forest. And my advice to that person was the state uh, mycological association. So in Minnesota, we have the Minnesota Mycological Society. Um, those groups, I think when I started in 2006, those groups were largely focused on foraging as kind of the main event. Right. Foraging and cooking and that kind of stuff, which is always cool. I'm down with that a hundred percent. And I've gotten more and more interested in that myself, but they have really evolved as have my classes. And I was asking you this before we got on the podcast too. I was kind of curious about um, people just like you that are, that find what I'm doing to be cool. There's nothing more endearing. And it's, um, and I feel like, I feel like I, I want to know where um, these people are coming from, but I'm pretty sure it's many. It's it's gotten more diverse, and people coming from it at, uh, with di many different perspectives, and that's reflected, I know, in our own mycological society, which has grown a lot since I started. And so I'm, I know, uh, having been over there a few times, it's not just foraging anymore. You'll get uh, a real range of diversity of types of interests and things. So most states um, and 
sometimes cities, if you're in a larger city, will have these mycological societies. San Francisco, you're blessed with a lot of action in terms of that's the, right. uh, that kind of uh, mycological uh, group. So those would be the best place because there's there's nothing better than learning the mushrooms from someone else who already knows them. And it's there. It's the mycologists are a warm bunch. I, I've never run into one of those four A tables where I didn't enjoy myself um, and feel included. And I'm you know a little introverted sometimes, and it's like I always feel welcome. So. Uh, that would be my advice would be to look for a local chapter or society and go out for a foray and see where it takes you, you know? Absolutely. I, I think you can't go wrong with just bringing your skill set, your perspective to a mycological society. And you've just laid out beautifully how it's going to take a lot of different disciplines, if you will. It's not, you don't have to strictly be academic and understand right. every part of the technical sequence to still have a valid input or be able to contribute to a project. Uh, so I think that's, that's yeah. fantastic advice. And it'll, it'll still be a gateway for you if you, if you end up in the sciences, because the, the DNA technology is really just letting us see, see things we couldn't see before. So it's technical, but it is pretty straightforward in terms of what it, what it lets you do. And so even in those societies too, you'll find people that are out, out to get the morels and Chaga and other people that will tell you how these amplicon sequencing data sets, let them see all these organisms. And that's right. Um, so you could find yourself. You could find your way into my lab from there, or you could find your way into into other realms of, of the world uh, through the same same place. A lot of opportunity. That's what I'm hearing. A lot of opportunity. There is an upswell in people getting into this. There is. And when you think about applied usage, and when you think about you know what these dynamics are teaching us, that that is a takeaway directly for kind of the human experience. You would think there may be more potential, whether it's in academia, because I've kind of heard two things there, but I've heard that sometimes in academia, there's kind of these big pairings back of mycology and then expansions. And, yeah. but in the private sector and different, it seems like mycology is on the rise. So you're going to do yourself a service if it's something you decide to pursue. There's, there's going to be opportunities. What I, what I take away. Definitely. Yeah. Those opportunities are shifting. The, um, you had mentioned at some point to Phil Ross and that uh, connection that I've had with MycoWorks, and that's been an interesting one to watch as well. And that's not like my story of the biofuels, where it's enzymes that are being utilized um, or the organism for the fermentation process. That's the fungus itself is the final product. And right. th uh, that is awesome. That is, first of all, it's really cool. It has a lot of potential. It was something that as it got going, um, not just MycoWorks, but the other companies that are kind of getting into that space. It's something that I saw as potentially a flash in the pan because I wasn't sure. I, I don't know. And um, the more I've watched that kind of sector grow, the more I've gotten interested um, because I think for one, financially and in terms of raising money and things, I think an entrepreneur or, a, you know, somebody I, I've had people tell me this, they're like, it looks real. You know, these are, these companies are getting it done. It looks like it's a potential for your, for your future to be wearing faux leather and working with products that are made out of mycelial mass. But for the scientists too, it's pretty cool because it enables us to ask uh, questions that are basic, that are in an applied context. That means that's code for fundable. Uh, you know, I, I might be able to get some funding to look at other things about how these organisms grow, how they branch. There are differences in the number of types of hyphae that these different strains have. And uh, some like Pleurotus, the oyster mushroom only has one. It's called monomitic. And so there's some others out there that have three different types of hyphal branching some that are very good tight woven types of hyphae and so there's a lot of potential to re-explore strains um, not for their enzyme potential but for how they grow 
And I think that's, I'm always for, all for that because there's a mutual benefit to maybe pushing the applications forward and then to understanding different aspects of the organisms that I love. So that's another area that's been a cool, cool growth, that area of growth lately. Very well said. And whatever skill set you're bringing to the party, being able to ask good questions that lead you to some tangible purpose right. is always going to be in need. I think it was Phil Ross who told me, he's like, you know, sometimes when we get to looking at all the fungal diversity, all the possibilities, I mean, it's so infinite that what do you even do with it? So you need to learn kind of right. how, what your compass is to navigate, what kind of questions you want to ask, what kind of purposes your imagination could think up to use with these things uh, and let that be your compass. So I think, you know, that's that's a skill that people can can bring to the table in some of these emerging private sector opportunities and companies. So yeah. Totally. And Phil's such a great example of somebody who's really adventurous and and think and he's thinking. And he he's somebody I met for the first time at Stanford. I really remember the visit. Part of it was that I got on the Caltrain when I was leaving and I missed my flight for <laughs> leaving there. So I always, it's like that ingrained that uh, in, in history, the time that I forgot to change my calendar to reflect the time difference. <laughs> but that meeting with him at Stanford there, uh, I was, it was, he was spending time in a lab there of somebody named Drew Indy, um, who was uh, somebody working in also kind of an adventurous, like bioengineering realm, mostly, uh, looking at kind of like public or community-based bioengineering solutions and um, also with a program called iGEM, which is a student competition for um, kind of coming up with application ideas um, it's that uh, Drew helped establish. And that interaction and just the setting at Stanford, which is always seems to have like a ray of sunshine coming down onto campus there, but that was memorable. And um, it was where I think I saw something that was a little different in terms of applications um, coming from somebody who also was, you know, coming from a different background, filled with some art background. And that I just thought it was so cool. And it's been really neat over the years. I think it's mutual. I, he's appreciated my science. I really appreciated his art background. And and then I've just watched watched that um, and watched him take some risks that have paid off. So it's been been great, that relationship. Yeah you've got to live that dynamic we were talking about was illustrated yeah. in you guys working together. Well, a beautiful synergy. <laughs> well, I guess then to wrap things up, I'll run through the three questions I like to ask all of my guests. And I have a feeling like much of the interview, you have very thoughtful, thought-provoking answers. Uh -oh, uh, the okay. first question is <laughs> a mushroom or fungus that you love and why, and this can be one you love for any reason. And this does not have the burden of a favorite by any means, but just a mushroom <laughs> or fungus you love and why. Uh, I, I know it. <clears throat> I thought about these a little ahead of time too. So, and I actually, if you ask me in 20 minutes, I could come up with a different, it's be different right? it'll be different. <laughs> the one that comes to mind that fits the, the, the lignant uncertainty and the kind of that story and has become kind of a, like a, it's like friendly, you know, it's the one I know is a uh, friendly fungus, the friendly fungus. It kind of looks like Shrek's ear or a sort of like a marshmallow coming out of birch trees. It's um, it was known as Piptoporus betulinus, the, the birch polypore. And uh, it has changed to Fomatopsis betulina um, as the species. So it's hard to keep up with species, the genus and species, but um, that is the birch polypore. So that's what I would name. It's a brown rot fungus that degrades birch. And it's basically the only brown rot fungus I ever see on birch. It's usually being degraded by other fungi like Fomis fomentarius or Linzides betulina. So this is the one brown rotter who happens to win sometimes on birch. And so 
I, I champion it. <laughs> hey, we have to give one for the underdog. Um, it's the underdog. A, fa- a fantastic answer. A fantastic <laughs> answer. And then much broader question, but this relationship you've developed with fungal organisms, both in the lab, out in the field, kind of going down to the very microscopic to figure out how they work, how they how they live, if you will. What has that relationship uh, given to you? And this can be, you know, something spiritual, broader perspectives, whatever that case is. But what has that relationship with fungi given to you? Well, I think in tactically, it's given me a tool um, at work um, that enables me kind of like the tip of the iceberg to introduce people to the microbial world. These are, some of these organisms are huge. Piptoporus is, looks like a giant mushroom coming out of a birch tree and you can see it from a car at 65 <laughs> miles an hour. You know, the, it's right. there, you know, you can see it while you're flying by. So it's an easy icebreaker for talking about something that links to the microbial world. And I think in general, that's what fascinates me in general about these fungi is that they do their, they break some rules for one. Um, you know, there's, there's some of these that, you know, there are eukaryotes that I learned a eukaryote is defined by having a mitochondria. There's some fungi that decided, well, we're just going to get rid of those. You know, we don't need them anymore. <laughs> we're just going to steal what we need for energy. And so, okay. You know, that's classic fungus thing to do where it's, uh, it's going to break some rules, but it is this transition zone, I think, between things that are familiar and the unknown um, of the microbial world. And to me, that's fascinating. It's hard to get your head around when you look to see the diversity of organisms that are in there with these DNA-based tools. It's both revealing and overwhelming at the same time. And it can bring you to a place of like when you're on your knees, just just assuming I'll never be able to understand all of this. That question earlier about field versus lab-based, one of the things about field research is that at least you can see final consequences. You may not know how it happened, but you can see what happened by like what the final product is. And it's like it's rotted, you know, 60% of this piece of wood is gone. So there's this final consequence, but there is a lot of mystery in that. Um, and I think the science side of me would say that we have emerging tools that are going to enable us to to disentangle some of that mystery. But the side of me that would have sat like on a rock face outside of Parisburg, Virginia, on the Appalachian Trail or something, you know, these moments that I had would say that it's just something grand. And it's another kind of example of something that we should cherish for the the complexities and the mysteries as something maybe bigger than us that's maybe a little bit on the spiritual side but that's um just amazing and that uh you know we're kind of lucky to live in a world that um, has some things that are so complex that we may never figure them all out um what a joy right Uh, otherwise life would be boring (laughs) and i think you just described two kind of beautiful images i got this idea of how this organism or the study of these organisms can tie together things that we always think of as kind of two sides of a spectrum like the ultra scientific and the spiritual and this bridges those effortlessly bridges together our feelings of awe inspired awe in science and kind of wanting to break down all the way to this I don't want to say reductionist, but this component level of exactly what's happening, those kind of sit side by side when we talk about studying fungal organisms. And I also love to think of fungi you see like popping out of that birch tree. It's like a microscope, a different functionality, but it is like a microscope in that it's drawing us into that microbial world. And I know that for myself included and a lot of people, 
we didn't understand some of these microbiomes and things until mushrooms kind of came into our life. So yeah, I think that's a, a, a great answer of the power that fungal organisms have. And then the last question uh, is another massive one, but when we think about <laughs> when we think about our society, and I think you could say greater human society or maybe Western society that did not have as entrenched a relationship with fungal organisms and mushrooms, you know, as we develop that relationship and people discover it more and more, this groundswell that you're seeing continues, how do you hope that changes society for the better? And that can be, you know, what society looks like in 50 years or just some aspect of lesson that the fungi teaches us that changes things for the better. But how do you hope that changes our society for the better? I could probably answer that by teasing it apart. This is sort of like the last question, you know, that part of me when I have my work hat on, or, you know, I call it the director hat sometimes when I'm at Itasca, <laughs> but it is, you know, my hope is that someone might see something like a morel, for instance, and and eat it, or so, you know, there's a connection that you'll make that's not just by through your eyeballs, but it might be through your olfactory and your taste buds, and you'll have this deep connection with something, and then it will be a gateway of sorts to learn about the mycorrhizal connections that it has with a tree, with a tree, and you know some of that kind of uh, fascinating science that's going on right now to understand how those relationships are formed, maintained, and uh, the benefit they, they have in the forest and something that's under your feet and, and out of sight. And so I think it is uh, a wonderful way for people to learn that we don't know everything. And I, um, it's good for science at the very least. It's good to remind people, no, we're, the frontiers remain. There are things that we don't know and they have major consequences. And a lot of these are uh, microbes that we couldn't see. Even in my own career, I didn't have an organism for which I had the DNA based tools to study until after I was a faculty for four years. You know, that's pretty, that's recent history. So we are just learning how these things work. So that tip of the iceberg kind of thing uh, with my director hat on, I would say. But I also think like the foraging and the interests in them for a variety of reasons that, you know, they're rule breakers. I think people are kind of curious about that. I think generally people have an organismal focus these days. There's like, there's, they're kind of like, dirty and rotten and they do weird stuff and people are kind of think that's cool. You know, they're, they're weirdos sometimes. And we like, we like that, you know, like, and there's some underdogs in there, there's some character in these organisms. And so I think, um, building those connections, at least personally, I just, I feel like, and I've always had this tagline in my email that's called with decomposition comes character. I think I'm always curious about the character of organisms. And I've always, when I was little, I wanted to you know, commune with the animals. I would sit up front in the car to look for animals. I wanted to see stuff, you know, I wanted to relate to things and that's never gone away. And I, I think, um, to do that with this set of organism that kind of wasn't on the radar, um, before has opened up a new box of opportunities for people. And so, um, I just want to share, share that with them. So I, I think it's cool time to be a mycologist and um, I love it that I am in these, have these opportunities like this one to, to share that you know, to share that joy. Yeah. Well, you are a fantastic ambassador for fungal organisms and for the science surrounding it. And I think then mushrooms and fungi end up being these, like you say, characterful ambassadors to draw us into the natural world, draw us into the microbial world. Uh, so yes, I think that, you know, I very much see that happening around me. And of course, I have a slightly slanted viewpoint 
kind of doing what I do and interacting with the people I do. But yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely see that happening. So, well, you're doing this, you're uh, doing the same thing. So I appreciate what you do too. <laughs> well, seriously, uh, Jonathan, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you yeah, on the show great. and have you break down, you know, everything from kind of a meta analysis of where mycology is and community science, but then dive deep into wood decomposers, which is just still kind of blowing me away right now. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been great to be here. Yeah. And I appreciate the invitation. It was, it was an honor to be here.